Let's go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 20. And we'll get to Judges 20 in a little bit. It'll be a minute. Uh, but before we do, let's, let's go ahead and pray. You can flip there while I pray. I don't care. It's not some sort of unforgivable sin. Lord, just uh, thank you for the work you're doing in this body of stretching us. I just think of how many firsts there are in this body. People coming here and getting saved and, and uh, being baptized for the first time and, and the only time. And, and people uh, coming to a prayer meeting for the first time where they would sit through an hour and a half of prayer. Uh, for the first time, people are reading through the Bible in a year. And, and Lord, as we study today for the first time, uh, they're going to fast and they're going to set, set time aside to, to spend with you in intimate fellowship with you. And then we just thank you for the work you are doing here. That it's all according to you, your glory, God. And Lord, as we just teach through fasting, Lord, as I do, give me the strength. And in all of my weakness and in all of my just inability to wrap my mind around things, just come through strong for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been said that the Rogers never miss a meal. You know, we're some big boys. You know, I'm the runt of my family pretty much. So uh, you can only imagine some of my uncles who've gotten up into the 420s, you know, uh, six foot eight, six foot nine, big men. You know, we like to eat. And, um, you know, I'm no different than most people. I'm no different than you guys and, and Americans, how our lives just revolve around three square meals a day. You know, our whole days, our whole weekends are planned around what we're going to eat, what we're going to buy at the store, who we're going to eat it with, you know, what you're going to do on your, on your lunch break. You know, our life just revolves around food. And like you guys, I'm the same way. Fasting is something that just doesn't really appeal to my flesh. I don't get super excited about starving myself for a week. You know, I don't lie in bed at night, you know. Just, oh, you know, why are you up, Rory? Oh, you're so excited to fast, you know? No, although my spirit is definitely getting there, my flesh isn't all that excited, you know? Actually, where I'm at now in my life, normally I can, uh, I'll get busy, and today was one of those days I'll, I'll study or I'll be working and I'll miss breakfast, uh, and then I'll miss lunch, and I like to work as long without taking lunch as I can into the afternoon. So a lot of times I eat lunch at 3 o'clock or something, like 2 or 3, you know? And I don't even think about it until it's like, whoa, it's time to eat lunch. And, uh, you know, that's, that's great until I'm fasting. You know, when you're fasting, you know, it's 8 o'clock in the morning and you're starving to death, you know? You've got these uh, sounds coming out of your stomach, up out of your gullet, that you're thinking, what is going on inside me right now? It's seven o'clock in the morning and I'm starving. Normally I don't eat until four and I'm, I'm just fine. For some reason, it's that way. When we set things aside for the Lord, we miss them. Our flesh craves them. You know, perhaps there are idols and gods in our lives. Food can be that where we just have to have it. You know, it's been said that it's easy to speak of fasting when the stomach is full. You know, how I love at the prayer meeting to pray ahead for that week of fasting, you know, and, and how we talk about it and can't wait to announce it. And, you know, and then when you're actually doing it, you're like, oh, mama, you know, <laughs> use some biscotti right now. 
yesterday, Lindsay and I were studying fasting and we read through Arthur Wallace's chosen fast. And uh, in a couple hours, we read 160 pages. I read like the Micro Machines guy, you know, fast is something, you know, and, uh, and, but by the time we were done, I was getting up and putting my book aside. And I don't know if Lindsay was trying to be a comedian, but she goes, all this talking about fasting is making me hungry, you know, <laughs> and we both just started cracking up and uh, went over to the Vaughn's house for some chili and stuffed ourselves with some brownies and ice creams and it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't pretty either. But as we study God's word, we need to grow as students in the area of fasting. You know, there's certain subjects we read in the scripture that we try to skip around, whether they'll cause conflict or cause debates within the church, or they'll cause us to be physically uncomfortable. We just kind of step around them and let's talk about baptism, you know, or let's talk about uh, heaven. Yeah, that's a good one, you know, but you know, today we're talking about fasting. We're going to walk through the word and see what the Bible says about this subject. Dozens and dozens of times fasting is mentioned in scripture. Dozens and dozens of times. Go get a concordance and write them down. You know, if you get, if you buy the book, uh, God's chosen fast, uh, it has a little concordance in the back with all of the sub, uh, all of the verses that deal with fasting. Now, before we dig into the word, what is fasting? You know, there's some modern definitions of fasting that I find very helpful, very useful, fairly accurate, and, and I want to let you know them, and I want you to write them down, but they're a little bit incomplete, but I like them. Uh, fasting is known to be denying the physical to seek the spiritual. Okay, excellent definition. Write it down, really use it. Deny the physical, whatever it be, whether it be food or television or, you know, uh, the radio, just, you know, things that you have to have throughout the day to make your day a perfect day. I'm going to get rid of those things and I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to say, no matter how hungry I am right now in my stomach, no matter how much I crave a tasty treat burger, you know, the rodeo burger, you know, that they don't make anymore, but they make for me because I'm a nice guy, you know, and that special fry sauce, you know, as much as I'm craving that right now, I crave you even more, God. As much as I thirst right now for that caffeinated drink, I thirst for you, God. I'm denying everything in this world because I need you, Lord. I need to see you move in my life. I want to spend time with you. Nothing in this world can compare to how much I need you and want you right now. And the more your tumble rumbles, you know, or your, sorry, that's a little Winnie the Pooh thing. Uh, The more your stomach growls, the more you cry out to the Lord. You hear this, God? You hear this? This is how much I need you. You know, you see this thing disappearing? Huh? That's for you, buddy. I need you. I want you. You know, great definition. Deny the physical to seek the spiritual. But I love what Arthur says in his book. We're on a first name basis now, even though the book was written in 1968. He wrote, when someone does not like the meaning of something in the Bible, they're tempted to spiritualize it and so rob it of its cutting edge. It can no longer cut. In the main, this is what the professing church, the evangelicals have done with the Bible teaching on fasting. To fast, we are told, is not to only abstain from food, but anything that hinders our communion with God. Or they say fasting means to do without, to practice self-denial. 
We have only to widen the meaning enough and the cutting edge is gone. It is true that there are many things that may hinder our communion with God and many things that we need to practice self-denial in. But the fact remains that to fast means not to eat. No matter how long of a period that is, our bodies have come to the point, especially where we have it in such abundance, that we have to have food or we're cranky or we're grumpy or we just aren't happy. And that's exactly what happens as you read in the book of Numbers to the, as, to the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt. They murmured and complained against Moses and the Holy Spirit because they wished that they were back in Egypt eating the, the meat and the leeks and the onions and the garlic and all that delicious food. Can't imagine what their breath was like, but, uh, you know, but they, they just weren't happy with God providing the way God was providing, unless it was a three course meal, you know, four course, three meals a day, how food can become our God. And you know what? There's something crazy. Lindsay and I were talking yesterday as we were reading the book, something crazy about how God has connected the spiritual realm and how he provides and how angels move and miracles and all of that, how he moves through what's going on in our stomach. Because what's going on in our stomach causes us to drop to our knees and cry out to God. Somehow, there's something crazy in the spiritual realm that's linked to our stomach. And as you read the Bible, 99% of fasting is from food. Don't get me wrong, it's good to fast from the TV. In fact, to me, it's foolishness to fast from food for seven days, but you know, make sure you got your... Op- you know, episodes of 24, you know, and you got all that. You got to make sure you watch it. You can't miss a week without Jack Bauer. You know, uh, there's something wrong there. You know, it's like, I know I should be seeking you Lord, deny the physical to seek, seek the Jack Bauer. You know that? Yeah. I'm speaking from conviction. Let me tell you. Um, <clears throat> Andrew Murray also said, fasting helps to express, to deepen to confirm the resolution that we are willing to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. And that was Andrew Murray, not Arthur Wallace. That's what fasting is. I'm willing to show you, Lord, through my practice, through my lifestyle, that I resolve to die for you every day to carry my cross for you. And here's one way I'm going to do it, Lord, by denying my flesh to seek you. Not only am I willing to not eat, I'm willing to be a martyr for you. I'm willing to be a witness for you. I'm willing to lay down my life to see the kingdom of God attained. You know, the disciples urged Jesus to eat. And in John chapter 4, verse 31 through 34, the disciples said, Rabbi, eat. But he said to him, I have no food to eat. Or excuse me, he said, I have food to eat, which you do not know. And the disciples said, did someone bring him some food? You know, and then Jesus went on to say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What if that was our food as a church, not just as a pastor, because it's not yet. I want that to be my food. What if an entire church in Prineville, their food was to do the will of God? That's what they thrived on. That's how they got their energy, not from having to have their caffeine fix of the day, but to have their Jesus fix of the day, to be used by him in the day. 
And so this morning, my prayer has been that the Holy Spirit will awaken us to understand how important and how vital fasting is to our Christianity, that he'll wake us up where we've been slumbering, that he'll stir within us this incredible practice that you see all throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. You see within church leaders and you see within just church attenders, that people will fall on their face and cry out to God in desperation. <clears throat> There's about six things that I want to I want to touch on just at the beginning. Number one, fasting is a means of humbling oneself in the sight of God. And we'll get to that in a little bit as we read Ezra. It's a means of humbling ourselves. Not one of us, you know, doesn't need to be humbled. Some more than others, you know, but we need to humble ourselves. Number two, fasting is directly connected with direction, knowing which way we should go. Fasting, number three, is directly connected with insight and revelation from God. Number four, with fasting comes God's divine intervention. Number five, fasting is a spiritual weapon, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that is mighty in God for pulling down strongholds that normally wouldn't come down. Arthur Wallace writes in God's Chosen Fast, and, and real quick, uh, I'm, I'm encouraging everybody to read God's Chosen Fast. It's a quick read. Lindsay and I read through it, you know, in a couple hours, just reading, I just read it aloud. Um, but you can sign up for it in the back and we'll order some and have them here by Tuesday. Okay, so I encourage you guys, everyone should get a copy. Uh, we have a few that are kind of going around as lenders, but um, for the most part, man, try to get yours. But Arthur Wallace says this. He says, in giving us the privilege, the privilege of fasting, as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete and she has thrown it down into some dark corner to rust. There it has laid for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. And I think that the church has been in that crisis the whole time that Jesus ascended into heaven. We've always needed special, special power and working of the Lord. Number six, fasting with a pure heart and a right motive can provide us with a key to unlock doors where other keys have failed. And it's so cool. We're going to see all this as we just work through the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about fasting. But it's such a shame that fasting is a subject that's been neglected by most Christians and for some is totally undiscovered. They've never even heard of fasting. They have no clue that it's for them and it's for today. And so let's just pray in our hearts that God will help us rediscover this powerfully played part of the Christian's life. In the Old Testament, Moses, who he fasted often, man, he did two separate 40-day fasts, you know, absolute fasts. Uh, excuse me, it, it was, uh, gosh, there's different vocabulary on it all, but basically he went without food for 40 days straight, two different times, 80 days. Um, you have King David, Esther, Hannah, Elijah, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Daniel. And that's just, you know, pick out some random guys from the old Testament. They fasted. So did a lot of other people in the new Testament. Jesus fasted in preparation for his earthly public ministry. 
The early church fasted when they were sending out missionaries or appointing church leaders. Paul, the spiritual giant that he is, says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I fasted often. Does that describe you? I fasted often. Does that describe you? In church history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, David Brainerd, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, all wrote in their journals about how fasting was a powerful part of their life. And we all say, I want to be like Elijah. And we've been talking about that on Wednesday nights. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And after that, he prayed that it would rain and it would rain. I want to be like Elijah. We've been talking about that. I want to be like David. I want to be like Paul. I want to be like these guys that seem miles ahead of me in their faith. You know what? For some reason as Christians, we want all the power of the early church, but we don't want the practice of the early church. And you know what? May we repent this week. May we take this week and seek God's heart because I am no better than anybody else in this room. This is a well that our forefathers have dug that has been stopped up by us and we need to dig it out and start drinking from it and watch what God's going to do in this community. I'm so excited to see what he's going to do. And so you ask, well, Rory, why are we fasting? What exactly is the biblical precedent? Is it more than just a few random verses sporadically throughout the scriptures? Well, let's just look at some of them, huh? Judges chapter 20, verse 26. I spent a little too much time in the first service explaining what led up to this, but basically Judah, or excuse me, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin had some really immoral people that basically raped and murdered a lady, okay? The rest of Israel found out about it and came and called Benjamin to repent and to, to seek forgiveness for this horrific sin. And Benjamin would not. So 400,000 Israelites went up to battle against 25,000 uh, or perhaps a little bit more, but the number we see is 25,000 Benjamites, okay? And so as they go up to battle against them, number one, they cry out to the Lord. You see it in verse 18. They cry out to the Lord, Lord, should we go up against Benjamin, our brother Benjamin? And the Lord says, you shall go up. So they went up and they fought and 26,000 Israelites were killed. No Benjamites killed. Wait a second, you know, and they had 400,000 people. Retreat, you know, whatever the retreat trumpet sound is. They run back, you know, and, and, they, and this time they pray and weep until evening. Lord, you know, should we go up? You shall go up. Yeah, charge, you know, they go down. 18,000 Israelites killed, no Benjamites killed. Oh man, something's wrong with our communication devices. Lord, are we hearing you right? You know, oh, I think we keep, are you saying don't go up or don't go up? Because, because seriously, we keep, you know. And finally, look at verse 26. Then all the children of Israel, that is all of the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And let's just jump a little bit there in 20, 28, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. 
the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. And so we see that when they were fasting and praying, uh, and praying, God spoke and gave them the victory that they were not able to accomplish until this point. Even through prayer, which is awesome. Even through weeping before the Lord, which is awesome. They neglected to fast like we so often do. And the battle wasn't won. Man, I wonder how many battles in our lives would be won victoriously, miraculously, if we would bring this part of of a Christian's faith, a Christian's life, a Christian's practice back into play. We see David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You can flip over there. Let me warn you, we're going to be flipping. Okay, so let's just purpose in our hearts. We're going to flip to every reference. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 19. Now you guys all know that, that David had had an affair with Bathsheba in chapter 11. And she ended up getting pregnant. And so David tried to bring her husband back, Uriah the Hittite, a mighty man of valor, one of David's friends. So that he could kind of manipulate the situation and make it look like she, it was Uriah's baby. And, uh, and because Uriah was so faithful, he wouldn't go into his wife. David ended up murdering Uriah. Okay, he murdered Uriah and then he took Bathsheba under his, his wing and, uh, and had, they were going to have this baby. And so for a year, David had been living a lie until Nathan the prophet confronted him. And as David was mourning and repenting, truly repenting over his sin, that he'd done murder and adultery and lying and so many others that probably came along with that, the Lord said, man, you know what? A wage of your sin is that your little baby boy is going to die. And so David set himself to fast and set himself to pray. And look there in verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate. Something's backwards here. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. This is a famous verse. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And so David knew that if he fasted and prayed, perhaps the Lord's mind could be changed. Perhaps the Lord will be gracious to him. Now, his prayer was answered, but not fully. The child did die. But God's grace was poured out upon David due to his fasting and his praying, his repentance So much so that this same woman Bathsheba that he'd had an adulterous, murderous affair with bore him a son named Solomon. And it says that God loved Solomon and made him to be David's heir. Out of all of his other sons, David was one of the younger ones, or excuse me, Solomon was. And Solomon became the king and would rule and reign under David, after David. That's grace. I mean, we would have been like, nope, sorry, you are from an adulterous relationship and there was so much drama from your mama that came from all of this and you're out, buddy. I don't know, Solomon, you just need to, you know, 
But no, the Lord's like, he's the one who the lineage of the Messiah is going to come through. He's the one that's going to reign in Israel. So David fasted in his failure. And you can read, I think it's Psalm 54 that records David's mourning. And and you should read it. It's awesome. But he fasted and prayed and appealed to God's tender mercies. Even in his failure, he knew he screwed up. He knew he was a mess. He knew he wasn't worthy. But he cried out for God to be gracious. And God was so Gracious. That's encouraging to all of us who are sinners, huh? All of us that have failed, all of us who've messed things up. In 2 Chronicles 20, we have Jehoshaphat leading a corporate prayer and fasting for the whole nation. And I want to do a special study on Jehoshaphat and his fast. I'm not sure when we're going to do it, but sometime we're going to do a special study on this. But what happened was in 2 Chronicles 20, three different armies came up against Judah to fight with them. They were surrounded. They were going to totally be wiped out. I mean, these armies were so much, so much greater in number than them. There wasn't a chance. And Jehoshaphat feared and set the whole nation to pray and fast. And a beautiful victory takes place. I mean, it's, it's incredibly inspiring as you read it. And I hope you'll take your homework assignment home and read it tonight uh, or this week. Uh, but it's just an incredible story that, um, that basically we see that fasting and prayer leads to great victories. And so I'm confident that as we go through this, this week of fasting and prayer, we're going to see great victories. Imagine What's going to happen when people who've never even thought about fasting consecrate a fast in their heart, set their week completely and totally apart from the Lord and say, Lord, anything in my week that normally satisfies, you're the one that satisfies now. Imagine what he's going to do. I'll guarantee one thing. He's not going to look the other way. If David, a murderer and adulterer can repent and be forgiven and have promise in his life, then whatever you've done, it ain't no thing, you know, <laughs> the Lord's going to work radically. Check out Ezra chapter eight, Ezra chapter eight, verse 21. You guys are learning your old Testament, aren't you? You're learning, you're learning where these books are. Ezra chapter eight, verse 21 says that, uh, it says, then I proclaimed a fast there Still hear those Bibles flipping. I'll wait just a second. It's funny. I I like to jump ahead. Isn't Bible flipping just a beautiful sound? Let's all do that again. You know, it's like, it's great to hear people flipping in their Bibles. Ezra 8, 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. So two things happen in Ezra's fast. Number one, fasting was a means by which he humbled himself and by which we humble ourselves. Monday of our fast is going to be given over to humbling ourselves before the Lord. We're going to start out right away laying down our pride, laying down how great we think we are and lay down, you know, that we need the Lord. We're going to be confessing our sins and laying down just everything that we have and just completely making ourselves nothing before the Lord so that he who is something can pour into us. Monday will be a day of humbling. The second thing that we see is that fasting in Ezra was a means of receiving direction. 
And maybe you're in a place where you don't know what you're supposed to do, where you're to go. That's exactly what you We need to know the right way for me and my little ones to go. And man, in, in Prineville's economy, the unemployment rate that's just staggering, you know, most of this church doesn't have a job. People are thinking of moving. We know guys that have gone to Florida to look for jobs and people from Florida that have come to Prineville to look for jobs. Not really, but Colorado, you know, it's pretty close. You know, all across, you know, unless you're not a type for Facebook, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of hope in Prineville, but no, I'm kidding. Totally kidding. But you know, we don't know what to do. Should I move my family, you know? Should we quit our job before they fire us? And should we go over here? And, you know, I just don't have a clue. Should we buy, buy low, sell high? You know, I don't know. What, what's, what's wisdom? I don't know what to do. Well, fast, seek the Lord for the right way to go. And that's what I love about Jehoshaphat's fast. I don't want to spoil the awesome Bible study that is in that. But Jehoshaphat prays out during their fast, Lord, we are surrounded on every side and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. If that's not poetic and makes goosebumps, you know, I don't know what is. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And I'm just so excited about this week of fasting and what he's going to do in you guys and how he's going to speak and how he's going to move. Because last year was the biggest fast I'd ever done. And, you know, I was in a place where before the fast started, it had been made known to me through the Lord and to my pastor Rob through the Lord. A little, little lipstick got on my teeth that I had. No, I'm kidding. None. Um, the Lord told both me and my pastor that by, the, by June, I was no longer going to be the high school pastor in Corvallis. When school ended, Rory ended, you know. And, uh, and so we were like, well, awesome. That's the Lord telling us that. So we... We're praying. Where are we supposed to go? Where are we, you know, we're going to go plant a church somewhere. Where are we going to go? And um, I just knew that the Lord was going to speak to me through this week of fasting. I just knew it. So day one, day two, really excited. Just, I felt like it was going to be at the beginning of the week so I could start making plans towards the end of the week. And just like, Lord, show me, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, by day three, I was discouraged. By day four, I was depressed. By day five, I was angry, you know. I was surrounded on every side. I had a deadline. I didn't know where to go. What am I going to do? And our school ministry instructor said, you know, Rory, I've fasted a lot. I'm pretty cool. No, um, that's not really how he put it. But he said, um, he said, Rory, I found that during the times of fasting, it's not always then that God speaks. It's not always in those five days or one day or whatever, that meal, it's not always right then. We want it to be right then. We're suffering right then. We feel like we deserve it right then. But sometimes it's long after the fast has ended that what's been going on in the spiritual realm comes to fruition and happens on earth. And so that, you know, those last two days were much more comfort and I was encouraged those last two days. And within a month of the fast, I'd felt like Casper, Wyoming was the direction we were supposed to go. And so I'd never been to Wyoming. I didn't know anybody in Wyoming. I went over to Casper all by myself. Uh, and I was, you know, blown over by the wind there. I met, I met one guy in a restaurant who served me sweet potato fries. And I thought, this is the Lord. I'm totally supposed to be, you know, he was my only friend I made. I got his phone number, you know, and uh, came back. We're praying. We're going to Casper, Wyoming to plant a church. And then a month before we move, we get the call from Ryan, uh, pray about coming to Prineville. And we wanted to stay in Oregon, but we thought that's just not an option. We're going somewhere we know not. We don't know anybody there. We don't know, you know. 
fry guy, you know, he's going to be my best friend, you know, maybe he'll help me unload my U-Haul truck at least, you know, and, you know, and God just radically opened the doors in a way that everybody that heard of it was just, wow, you know, and, and it was the same with vice versa, you know, I was wow with getting to come to be with you guys. God opened the door radically. I didn't know what to do, but my eyes were on him. And I know that there's people in this church that are in that place. Fasting is a means of receiving direction. Look at Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. Now Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer of the king of Persia. And word got to him that the wall around Jerusalem had been destroyed and that the temple had been destroyed. And when he found out, he was just so bummed and so sad. And so Nehemiah chapter one, verse four So it was when I heard these words, Nehemiah is right after Ezra, chapter one, verse four. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then as you look at chapter two, verses one through seven, he's fasting, he's praying, he's grieved, he's mourning. And he's standing before the king as the king's cupbearer, and the king notices that he's sad. Now, the cupbearer's job was to test the wine to make sure there wasn't any poison in it. So if you looked sick or bummed out or nervous in any way, you were dead in one way or another. I mean, it's the end. You're at least jobless, you know. And the king says, you know, what's wrong? And Nehemiah was just, you know, he just said, man, I'm just, I'm bummed because the wall and the temple, the city, it's destroyed. And so the king said, well, what can I do for you? And as you look there at verse four, it says, so I prayed, actually verse five, right before, yeah, verse four. So I prayed to the God of heaven. He prayed, he's in the middle of fasting and he prays and he says, king, how about you? Let me have some vacation time so I can go back to Jerusalem. Give me a free passport so I can get through all the countries that might cause me any trouble on the way. And would you provide for me a whole bunch of my countrymen to go back with me? And also, could you have somebody provide all of the lumber and all of the bricks and everything so that we can build this wall back up? You know, just like, well, now that you asked, how about everything? Could you give me everything? And incredibly, at the end of verse, uh, the end of verse eight, I believe it says, and the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. The king granted it, but it wasn't about how great Nehemiah was as a speaker. It was about what the Lord was doing in the spiritual realm. And then if you look over at Nehemiah chapter 9, in chapter 8, Ezra brings out the book, the Bible, and starts reading it in the public congregation there in Jerusalem. And as the word was read, people started weeping and being convicted of their sins. And it says, as the Bible was read, people raised up their hands and said, amen, amen. And people started getting saved so that more people had to come around and start reading the Bible. And then it says people had to come and give the sense. And Bible studies were going all over, incredible revival happening. Well, in chapter 9, verse 1, You see, on the 24th day of the month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. What's happening here is revival. 
fresh breath coming into the men of Israel, that they would have humbled themselves. It takes a lot to confess your sin before people, but to stand up in public and confess idolatry, sexual immorality, the marrying of these foreign women who caused them to go worship other gods, apostasy, and all that we've been studying on Wednesday night, all of those sins, they stood up and they were bold and confessed them revivals taking place and the rest of Nehemiah chapter nine is one giant worship service. And I'm confident that as we seek the Lord in prayer and fasting and we humble ourselves, that the Lord's going to convict us and show us sin that we might not even know about hidden sin. And that as we can, man, there's going to be confession happening. There's going to be a work of the spirit happening. I'm so excited about the revival that's going to happen like happened in Nehemiah chapter nine. But like Joshua chapter seven tells us, if there's sin in the camp, God is hindered from moving. And Joshua chapter seven, they're, uh, they're fighting against Ai and they had plundered a town before you know they had defeated a town they were told not to take the possessions from that town well a man named Achan took a wedge of gold and a garment and went and hid it under his tent and as they went back out to fight against Ai uh, they were losing the battle and Joshua was saying why are they losing the battle and the Lord says because one of your guys stole the plunder from this wicked city that he wasn't supposed to plunder. And so I'm going to narrow it down to the tribe, to the household, to the person, and you need to deal with that person. And so as you read Joshua 7, that's exactly what happened. It got narrowed down to Achan's house. And they go, what'd you do, Achan? He goes, well, I saw this wedge of gold and it was so beautiful. I saw this garment. How could I say no? So I buried it under my tent because yeah, you can really enjoy it there. And it's so sad that, that this man's sin caused him and his whole family to be killed. And it's just a lesson that our sin doesn't only affect us, but it affects our whole family, our whole church, our whole city, because the battle was being lost and men were being killed. And so does God want to do something in Prineville? Does God want to do something in our church? Yeah. Perhaps he's hindered by sin that's not confessed and dealt with here. And may we take this week to prepare our hearts and have the Lord show us the things that are in us that are quenching a work here, that are quenching a move of the Spirit. You look at Esther leading a fast. In Esther chapter 4, verse 1, there was a bad guy named Haman the Agathite who convinced the Persian king Ahasuerus that every Hebrew, Hebrew person was a bad guy and should be annihilated and the Persians should plunder all of the Jews' wealth. And so a man named Mordecai, who was uh, Esther's cousin, who kind of acted like her dad, took her under his wing, an older guy. It says in verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, that this decree went out for annihilating the Jews, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud, bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So the Jews are going to be annihilated. What are we going to do? But there's a gal named Esther 
who's a queen right now, and she's a Jew, and nobody knows she's a Jew. Maybe she can do something. So verse 15, then Esther told, or excuse me, I kind of jumped ahead. Basically, Mordecai went and asked Esther, you've got to talk to the king. You've got to save your people. And Esther's afraid. She thinks she's going to die. And, and Mordecai says those awesome words. Who knows, Esther, if God brought you here for such a time as this to save the Jewish people. So he kind of talked her into it. So verse 15, then Esther told them the reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What an incredible thing that this woman declared an absolute fast, no food or water for three days. These desperate times uh, were a cause for desperate measures. And man, in times of great crisis, God's people should fast. On days like 9-11, the people should, should humble themselves and pray and cry out for the Lord to move. It's miraculous that after she talked to the king, he went to bed that night and couldn't sleep. And so he called for the chronicles of Judah to be brought to him. And he started reading about Mordecai and what a hero he was. And so he said, you know, what, you know, has Mordecai ever been rewarded for his heroism? And they say, no, not a thing. And so the king brought Haman in. You know, it's said that when the Jews would read about Haman, they stomp their feet and hiss. You know, we did that at our church once and it was a little bit distracting. It's like, what's going on here? A little awkward too. But the king calls Haman to come in. And the king goes, Haman, what should be done for a, for a hero of the king? And, and Haman's like, well, he was talking about me, you know. So he says, the hero of the king should be given a big white stallion with a fancy little outfit, you know. And he should be paraded around the town and been great, given great things. It's going to be awesome, you know. And then the king goes, yeah, hey, could you do that for Mordecai? <laughs> and so Haman has to drag the horse around like pony rides. Yeah, he's awesome, you know. Then later, Haman was hung on the very gallows that he built to kill Mordecai on. How miraculous that God would wake up King Ahasuerus in his bed at night. How much more that he didn't flip through popular mechanics, but that he said, hey, bring me the chronicles of the kings, you know. And Hey, who's this Mordecai? Has he been rewarded? How God worked in this time of crisis through prayer and fasting. You hear about in World War II, the king called the whole nation of England to pray. But how two centuries earlier in 1754, uh, the French were about to invade England and the king said that the whole nation should fast and pray. And John Wesley was there when it happened and he wrote in his diary, uh, the fast was a glorious day. Imagine the whole nation praying and fasting. The fast was a glorious day, one that London has scarce seen since the restoration. Every church in the city was more than full, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God will hear our prayer, and there will be a lengthening of our tranquility. A footnote goes on to say, Humility was turned to national rejoicing, for the threat invasion by the French was averted. How the Lord moves in time of crises, and what if the church led by example... 
How, what an what a offering of love to the non-believers who are going through the same thing. If you look at Isaiah chapter 58, you have not only one of the most powerful uh, descriptions of fasting, but we're shown exactly what it does. You know, we're shown very encouraging things that I know many of you will be prompted to fast after reading Isaiah 58 verse 3. In Isaiah 58, we see both how not to fast and how to fast, you know, and we're, Jesus kind of tells us in the Mount of Beatitudes, you know, that we're not to go around with, you know, totally long faces like, oh, somebody, I'm fasting, look at me, look at me, you know, so that we could get glory for being very religious and this is what I do, I'm religious, you know, but, um, but there's a similar thing that Isaiah tells us in verse three, why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen. Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure, the Lord says, and you exploit all of your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I've chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? All of that outward appearance mumbo jumbo wasn't worth anything. In fact, those guys were being jerks. They were exploiting their laborers. They were fasting for their own gain. Can you believe you can do that? You can starve yourself for your own gain. You know, that's not right before the Lord. Here in verse 6, Get your pen out and get ready to underline, man. If you don't have a pen, use your eyeliner because this is good stuff. (laughs) Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Are you in sin? Are you in bondage? You know, are you addicted to substance? Fast with us. Believe that the Lord can deliver. Cry out to him. Are you, you know, in bondage to sexual addiction? You know, have you tried everything in your power and no key that you've tried has unlocked the door? Man, will you fast with us and watch the Lord break, break the bonds of wickedness? Take the yoke upon you? Jesus says, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You know, take my yoke upon you, for it's easy and my burden is light. You'll find rest for your souls. Man, are you just so condemned all the time because of your habits and your practices and you just can't break free? Fast with us. Expect the Lord to deliver you. Claim his word. He goes on to say, verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. You know, fasting isn't so that we can keep all our food in our pantry and be like, man, when I get done fasting, I'm going to eat all this stuff. I'm just going to shove it in, you know. No, that's not the Lord's heart. He's saying, all right, now that you're not eating, take the food that you would eat or the money that you'd use to eat and feed other people and show them the love of Jesus and share with them, I'm not eating today so that you can eat. And that's the love of Jesus, my friend. Well, what's going to happen then, Rory, if you're so great? I'm not, but look at verse eight. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. 
and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Man, if we would just fast, if we just do it and see what God will do, watch him break those yokes, watch him break those bonds, watch the darkness that's been oppressing you and you've just been feeling weighed down with spiritual darkness and oppression, watch the light break forth and shine. You'll be like the noonday. You'll be set apart. Holiness will be renewed in your life and purity. If you look at the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, their primary fault wasn't their sodomy and homosexuality, but it was in Ezekiel 16, 47, we see, look, the iniquity of your sister Sodom, she and her daughter had pride, fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. What led to these horrific sins of homosexuality and sodomy? The fact that she had, she wanted nothing. She had as much food as she could ever want and she had as much time on her hands that she turned her back on God. That's where all the wickedness came from. But what happens when we set apart a time for fasting? God gets a hold of us and he awakens us. Look at Daniel chapter 9 and 10. We'll just really breeze through it. But basically Daniel was reading Uh, the prophet Jeremiah and realized that the reason they're in captivity was because of their sin. And there were 70 years. And once he realized this, uh, that that 70 years were appointed for uh, Judah to be in captivity. Verse three, after Daniel heard all this, Daniel nine, three, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting sackcloth and ashes. Then I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession. And one of your assignments this week is to read Daniel's 9 and 10. Read this prayer of confession. You want to know what confession looks like? Check it out. This guy has an awesome prayer of confession. And verse 20, jump down there. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, or the angel Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out and I've come to tell you for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So because Daniel fasted and prayed and confessed his sins and humbled himself, God came and spoke to him, said, you're greatly beloved. And then he gave him one of the most incredible, powerful prophecies that the Bible has specifically to the day when Jesus would come into Jerusalem 
In the next chapter, chapter 10, a similar thing happens, but this time Daniel fasts from pleasant food. Doesn't eat meat. He eats vegetables and drinks water. For 21 days, he fasts and prays. And you see that uh, an angel comes to him again and says, Daniel, from the first time you set your heart to cry out, the Lord heard you and he sent me. And for 21 days, I couldn't get to you because I was fighting against this demonic angel that was the head over Persia. And I fought for 21 days trying to get to you, to give you this message. And finally, Michael, the archangel had to come and take over for me so I could get here. I just want you to know that's why it's been 21 days. And could you imagine what's going to happen for us in the spiritual realm? There's a battle that takes place, you know, and we just need to keep pressing in and keep fighting and use our spiritual armor and use our weapons of warfare that aren't carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. But the Lord gave Daniel knowledge. You want knowledge? You want understanding? Do you want to be told you're greatly beloved? Spend time with the Lord so that you can hear him tell you that because you are greatly beloved. Ah, so exciting. And we are almost done. I know a lot of new people here, they're like, is this how long he always goes? No, no, totally not. Never, never have. No. Um, In Zechariah chapter seven, verse five, today is a special study. We are just going a little bit long, but there's not much left. In Zechariah chapter seven, verse five, we're told one of the most important reasons for fasting. What's paramount in our fasting? In verse five of Zechariah seven, It says, say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned on the fifth and seventh months during those seven years, did you really fast for me, for me? Don't you love that? He he says that twice. Did you really fast for me, for me? Guys, when we fast, We might have a list of all that we desire to see the Lord do in our life and accomplish. And yeah, a lot of it's really good for his glory. But really, our fasting, like Luke chapter 2, we read of a woman named Anna. And now it says she worshiped the Lord with fasting. And in Acts chapter 13, you read about the early church leaders, how they ministered to the Lord through fasting. That's what fasting is. That's what's paramount about it is that we worship the Lord and whatever he wants to work out in it, that's fine by us. But number one, I'm going to worship the Lord and I'm going to bless the Lord. The loftiest conception, uh, Arthur Wallace says, is worshiping the Lord in our fasting. Really quickly, we're just going to browse through uh, fasting in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus is thrust into the wilderness by the spirit for a 40 day fasting period. And I love this about Jesus because he led by example, like he always does. Anything he asks of us, he's already done himself. And Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It goes on to say that he became a man like us. So he might sympathize with us and all of our weakness, and he can be a ready help in time of need. He's been there. He's gone through everything we've gone through. He's been tempted with every temptation that we've been through, yet without sin. And so he's there to help us because he knows what it's like. And he's there to help us in our fast. He did it 40 days. You know, we're just consecrating a seven day fast and we're giving you the freedom to do with it whatever you want, whatever you feel the Lord leading you to do. But 40 days and notice it says after 40 days, he was hungry. Doctors have done studies that show that, you know, after the first three days, you don't really feel hunger anymore. 
uh, and, and, you know, you kind of are content, you know, by seven days, you're kind of like, wow, I'm not hungry at all. I could do this for a long period of time. Usually throughout the next, you know, 20 something days, um, you don't feel any fasting. In fact, it's an awesome time. Your body is purifying itself of toxins and, you know, all these addiction things and, and you'll feel, you know, more energy and stuff than normally you ever have. You got to read Arthur's or the chosen fast. You got to, it's awesome. But anyways, by 40 days, typically it's 40 days that the body has eaten all of its fat off of you. And it's, and it's, um, starting to eat your healthy cells and things. And that's when you start to feel hunger again. This time starvation is setting in. So something incredible is Jesus led by example. He was hungry again after 40 days. Starvation had set in. He'd led by example, you know, and went, went the whole nine yards with his fasting. In Matthew chapter six on the Mount of Beatitudes, Jesus says there in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, let your prayers be like this. When you give, give like this. And then he says, when you fast, not if you fast, or disciples, it's totally just up to you, whatever you want to do. I'm cool, you cool, we're all cool. You know, when you fast. And then he goes on to say, you know, don't, don't get all, oh, I haven't brushed my teeth in six days. Oh, I'm eating. I just haven't brushed my teeth. No, uh, you, know, you know, you just don't shower, you don't shave, you wear, you know, sackcloth and ashes, and you try to get everyone to look at you. <gasps> it's so hungry in here, you know. And uh, did you hear my stomach? You know, and the Lord doesn't want that. He's like, just let it be between you and me as much as possible. We take that to the, to the stern, like, don't let anybody know you're fasting and don't even talk about it. You know, some people get encouraged by you sharing with them what you're doing. You know, and that's an okay thing, but just make sure your heart is right in the matter. Mark chapter nine is awesome. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and John and, and James. And there's the disciples are fighting with the Pharisees because there's a demon possessed boy who they couldn't cast the demon out of. And so Jesus says, what are you arguing about? And, and finally the man comes up and he says, you know, my, my son, from, since his youth, has been demon-possessed, and he you know, breaks the chains and rolls into the fire, and these demons try to kill him. And Lord, if at all possible, you know, could you heal him? And the Lord says, if anyone believes, all things are possible. And the man says this, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so the Lord healed that little boy from the demons on that day. And as they're walking away, the disciples say, why couldn't we heal this this demon-possessed kid. And Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, this kind doesn't come out but by prayer and fasting. You know, when you come across a demon-possessed person, you don't have time to go fast. You know, okay, I'm fasting right now. Get out. You know, you, you can't do that. You need to have a lifestyle that's a prayerful lifestyle, a fasting lifestyle. H.A. Iron said, No one can have power over unclean spirits unless he's in intimate touch with God. And I've been there. When I was in Brazil, LJ, you were there. This demon-possessed guy comes running down the sidewalk, and I was a little bit grumpy, and I hadn't had my Wheaties that morning. <laughs> you know? And this demon-possessed guy came up and got all up in my grill, and I was not ready for it. I sensed immediately in my heart, in my spirit, <gasps> you know, this guy, you know, he was this close to me in my face, and I just started yelling at him to get out. Not yelling at the demon, yelling at the man get out of here. I don't have time for you. We're trying to catch a plane. You know, I hadn't been fasting, you know, 
I hadn't been in intimate touch with God. I was yelling at some of my high school boys because they wouldn't get out of bed. Um, that's what happens in Brazil. That's what happens on our missions trips. You guys should come. You get to see me in, you get to see me in the flesh. Just browsing through in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it says that they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. Then after fasting and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So what happens when we minister to the Lord and fast and pray? The Holy Spirit speaks, just like in Acts chapter 13, and ministers are raised up. Missionaries were sent out here. The kingdom is advanced and furthered. And all next week, we're going to fast and minister to the Lord, and we look forward to hearing him speak to us. Then in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, you read of them appointing elders in the church and fasting and praying and appointing elders. And that's what's got to happen before leaders are appointed is a time of testing and a time of fasting, a time of praying. Don't just throw people in leadership positions. And like Paul said, I was in fastings often. We're going to close with Joel chapter two, verse 12. So everyone flip there and we really are almost done. But Joel talks a lot about fasting, and in chapter 2, he consecrates a fast. Joel 2.12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. The Lord wants us to rip our hearts apart, not our clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Blow the trumpet in Prineville, I mean Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people on January 31st or February 6th. Um, Rory's paraphrase. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing womb. This is more important than your wedding day. Sorry. Um, Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. And so our church is going to, like Joel, consecrate a fast. And the leaders and the members and the babies and the wives and the husbands, we're going to fast Unto the Lord. What's the schedule of the fast? Well, it begins next Sunday and we're going to have normal services, but we're going to come with the awareness that the church has begun fasting. On Monday, we're going to humble ourselves and the seniors Bible study meets in here. So we might have to run over to the, to the youth room and we can pray over the drywall that just got laid in there. But Monday night, it'll, we'll probably be in there. There'll be signs. Don't worry. You won't get lost. We'll Google map it. Uh, <laughs> But Monday night and Monday day, we're going to humble ourselves. So Monday at 6.30 to 7, we're going to pray. Then at your lunch hour, you're welcome to come here or you can go pray by yourself. But we'll be here worshiping and praying during the lunch hours throughout the week. And then from the night times from 7 to 8. Tuesday night, we're going to come here. We're going to meet with the youth group. And for an hour, we're going to pray for the youth of this town. And the revival would start in the youth And we're going to lay our hands and pray over the kids in this church who come to Tuesday night Bible study. We're going to lay our hands on Chad, our youth pastor, and pray for him and cry out for him. You know, one of the nights we'll probably cry out for a move of his spirit of some kind, you know, for gifts to be poured out, 
Probably one day we'll pray for revival specifically, but we'll be led, that's for sure. But I encourage you on your flyer that you have in your bulletin to check as the Lord is stirring on your heart. Check a box now. Lord, you're stirring me to do something. One day, two days, one meal a day. You know, um, you know, if you have health issues, you need to go and talk to your doctor. So this week you need to do that. If you're pregnant or nursing, then you shouldn't fast. You can just pray and, and set aside other things in your life. Um, but I encourage you to make a commitment of some kind to join us. You know, there's something wrong. And I'll be honest, there's something wrong in you. If you're a part of this church and the leadership is calling a fast and standing on the scriptures and you don't want to have any part in it. I'm not saying you should fast completely all seven days, but you need to pray and ask the Lord what you're to fast from and how long and to join us and be a part of it, you know, and, and write down on your flyer there, you know, what am I specifically fasting for this addiction or this spiritual, you know, oppression or, you know, for revival in my town or at my work, but write it down and begin praying now. You know, just ask the Lord to search your heart. And as we go into this week, be expectant to watch God to move. Amen. 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 Let's consecrate a fast. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.